All right, let's try that again. Good evening. All right. Um, thank you so much for coming. And um, yeah, we're going to do a deep dive on uh, the offices of Christ tonight and sort of wrap up our winter term. And um, I know I was here last week when Russ uh, not only taught but also sang. I'm just going to say from uh, the very beginning that I would not be singing, and that's to your benefit. So um, trust me, you're not missing out on anything. Um, I'm going to see if I can do this by myself, but if I'm not on the same page, just pretend like I am, and uh, I'll get it eventually at some point. Okay. Um, Let me pray for us, and we'll start. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we can come and look into your word and study Christ, and we pray that you would not only inform our minds, but that you would shape our hearts so that the word that we study will move our hearts to worship and that we as your people would seek uh, to be like you um, as we consider the great love uh, that you have shown to us and how you every day uh, administer grace to us in, in, in more ways than we're aware of. I pray that it would create a sense of gratitude, but also urgency as we think about the call to engage the city and to love it well, that you would help us to exercise our offices of prophet, priest, and king um, as your people, so that through us, our work, our prayer, that you would build your kingdom here in the city, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, tonight we're rounding things off uh, by looking at... um, the offices of Christ. And um, by this we mean prophet, priest, and king. And really, it boils down to Christ's um, function as the mediator of the covenant. So when we talk about what do we mean by, one, Christology, but more specifically, the offices of Christ, uh, we're looking at how Christ administers Uh, God's grace to us as the mediator of the covenant. And uh, you're not going to see the three offices parsed out in the the word, but as early as Eusebius, the first church historian, this sort of gained traction, and eventually Calvin was really big on it, because in many ways, it sort of helped to understand concretely the way Christ uh, not only intercedes on our behalf as a priest, but really speaks the truth to us, administers grace, sets us free, empowers us, and all of that stuff. So where do we get the offices of Christ? Well, it's from the title, Christ. Um, Okay, sorry, don't have that there. Um, The most significant title uh, for Jesus is Christ. Now, you guys know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? But it's a title the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach, which means the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, the three offices were commonly inaugurated by a ceremony of unction or anointing as a sign of God's sanction. And they are the prophet, and we have examples of this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, I have a ton of 
like references, scripture references, if you would like them, come see me. Otherwise, I'm going to try and skip some of these things for the sake of time. But in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, we, see, uh, we read about the anointing of prophet Elijah as he begins his um, role or call as a prophet after Elijah. And also, the priests were anointed. In Exodus chapter 30, we have the anointing of Aaron. And lastly, the kings uh, were anointed in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, where Samuel anoints the first king of Israel, King Saul. And in a similar fashion, Jesus, as he began his calling, his office as prophet, priest, and king, was anointed not with oil, but with the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 3, there we go, verse 16 and 17, Uh, We read, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So this is a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus in that you not only have Jesus identifying with people, the sinners who need the forgiveness, Uh, that he promises, but it's in many ways a ceremony where God, where Jesus then begins his public ministry. And the coming of the Spirit is not just uh, for us to see the the Trinity work together, but it really goes back and picks up on this whole idea of the Messiah, the Anointed One. Uh, This was spoken hundreds of years earlier in Isaiah 61. Um, It reads, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. Here, this, this describes the coming uh, Messiah, the servant of the Lord and his ministry. And it says, the, sovereign, uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, which is the priestly role, to pro- uh, proclaim freedom for the captives. That's the prophetic role. And release from darkness the prisoners, the kingly role to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Again, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, speaking of Jesus says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. I meant to do that to see if you were paying attention. Good. Uh, hopefully I won't make a habit out of it. Okay. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his, uh, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And here you begin to see already the difference between the Old Testament prophet, priest, and king and Jesus slash the people of God. In the Old Testament, these prophet, priests, and kings, people who were anointed with the Spirit, were anointed for a season and for a particular task. And that's why King David prays in Psalm 51, do not take away your spirit from me. After his sin with Bathsheba and all the failed cover-up, David is not saying, I don't want to lose my salvation. But he's saying, I don't want to lose that spirit, the anointing that you have given me to serve and function as a king over your people. Okay? So in the Old Testament, it was temporary for a very particular uh, 
goal or task. But in the New Testament, beginning with Jesus, we see a different role and a richer role the Holy Spirit plays in the lives of God's people. He comes and he dwells among us. And this is the whole new era, right, that the Old Testament prophets spoke of, that it wouldn't just be a covenant of law, but we look ahead, as the prophet said, to an era where it would be covenant of grace and the Spirit, where the Spirit will come now and he will inhabit, dwell within us. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, Again, the prophetic rule, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he would delight in the fear of the Lord. He would not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he would judge the needy. With justice, he would give. Did I forget? Okay, verse 3. And he would delight in the fear of the Lord. He would not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by... What he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he would judge the needy. With justice he would give decisions for the poor of the earth. He would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he would slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. So basically, you have this idea that in the future, we will have this unique God-man who will be born a king. And he won't just continue the line of the prophet, priest, and king, but he will be the culmination of all of these things. And his ministry will combine all these three offices, and it will be completely different. Like nothing that the Old Testament people of God witnessed. It's talking about righteousness, peace, nations coming together. And you get the picture that God, even from the beginning, as he is instituting these offices, ordaining the people for that very work, has an eye toward the nations. And we shouldn't be surprised because if sin and the curse of sin is universal in that all people in Adam fell together, then salvation has to be at least of that scope, if not larger. And here we begin to see the mixture of Jesus's role as a prophet who will speak wisdom and understanding and reveal those things to us, and that he will counsel us, and that he will lead us into righteousness, right, the priestly role, and he will certainly be a king. The nations will gather, and that resting place will be glorious. In order to understand the significance of the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments, uh, we have to first talk about typology. Okay? This would be our working definition here. Typology in Christian theology is a doctrine concerning the relationship between the Old and New Testaments. Events, persons, or types of the Old Testament are seen as types prefiguring or foreshadowing the antitype, which is the work or the person of Christ. Now, there are many examples of this in the Old Testament. You can say David is a type of Christ. His office as king, the things that he prays, the Psalms he writes are unique in that he writes from the vantage point of a type. Therefore, we cannot, as regular Joshua Christians, pray the similar prayers or write similar songs about, you know, wishing pain, suffering, death on the wicked and those who oppose us. 
David, as he is singing those songs or praying those prayers, is basically safeguarding the office of the Messiah to come. And so his prayer in the Psalms take on a different element altogether than what you and I, as Christians, would be praying and singing. Now, this is one of the most clearest examples in all of the scriptures. So we'll park it here in Exodus chapter 12, and we'll talk about the Passover. Now, okay, as you know, the Passover basically happens in the story of Exodus as God's people are getting ready to leave Egypt. All the, the nine signs have come, and now the 10th sign, right? Not the plague, but sign, really, as God demonstrates who he is, reveals himself, right? Not only to the Israelites, but to the Egyptians. And as you get to, into the book of uh, Judges and so on and so forth, you realize that the fame of God had spread all throughout Canaan. Rahab already had heard about God, and the people there, right, the Ammonites, the Hittites, and everyone else, they're trembling in fear because of what God has made known in Egypt. So as a tenth sign, God basically said, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, right? You basically killed the firstborn sons of the Israelites. Remember what the Pharaoh did? If the Hebrew women give birth to a boy, Get rid of it. And so God basically says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. So he, as a tenth sign, says, I will wipe out all the firstborn. Okay? And then he says to the Israelites, but it's going to be different for you. I will deal with you differently. And he says, starting with verse 5, the animals you choose must be uh, year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Okay, this is basically instructing them on the whole Passover and the Exodus to follow. Verse 7, uh, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Oh, I got that right. Okay, that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the raw, uh, meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the word Passover comes from literally God passing over the house of the Israelites when he saw the blood on the doorframe. God himself will go and kill every, first, every firstborn in Egypt, but he will show mercy, not judgment, to the people. Okay? And this whole act was a foreshadowing of what was to come ultimately through another blood of the lamb. It's the blood of the lamb that covers us. And instead of judgment, because of the blood that covers us, God skips over us. Okay? And instead he shows us mercy, grace, kindness. And so as the Israelites were called to not only do this, but to celebrate this every year, it was to remind them that a greater exodus was to come. Right? They longed for a greater deliverance, greater salvation that was to come. And they knew because they were living in it, in 
in Israel, things weren't perfect. That it had to be better than this. That God's promise to bless all peoples on earth had to be better than this. Because we're dropping the ball left and right. We're not blessing any. We're being a curse, if anything. And we're bringing curse upon ourselves. And imagine as the Israelites were getting ready to celebrate Passover in light of the, the whole Babylonian exile that is to come. As Jeremiah, Isaiah, those, the prophets were telling them, it's too late. It's too late now. The judgment is coming. And they're celebrating Passover. They're saying, wait a minute. What's happening here? There has to be a better salvation. And it points us to Christ. And we, from this side of the cross, understand how the events that took place in Exodus chapter 12 pointed forward to Christ and a better blood, better mediator, and a better uh, savior. The offices of Christ show how Christ, the prophet, priest, and king, par excellence, mediates the relationship between God and man. And again, this idea of understanding Christ as a mediator in these three different categories uh, became popular of as, as early as the church was born through Eusebius, the first church historian, and it got picked up uh, by John Calvin, and he unpacked it richly, and you can read all about that in the Calvin's Institute. So let's get to it. Um, let's get to the, the offices. Okay. There is Jesus the prophet, I don't know that he actually looked like that. He looks very sad, but I don't know. Something about the color I liked. So I know I'm a profound thinker. Okay, uh, the prophetic office. Simply put, a prophet represents God to man primarily as a spokesperson with the divine formula, thus says, uh, says the Lord. And you have that all throughout the prophetic books. Uh, as they're moved by the Spirit, they will say a message that God has for the, his people. And it will always begin with, thus says the Lord, so on and so forth. As early as the life of Moses, God promised that he would provide a prophetic guidance for his people. In Deuteronomy, oh, sorry, it's up there already. 18, verses 15 and 18. This is what uh, we read. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. This promise was partially accomplished through the succession of the Old Testament prophets, but was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate, the Logos himself. Unlike the Old Testament prophets, Jesus did not use the messenger formula, thus says the Lord, but he spoke the Word of God as the source of all divine truth. And disciples acknowledge this in John 6, verse 68, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember, Jesus was gaining a whole lot of popularity. People were following him. And Jesus turned basically to them and said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And many at that point turned away and walked away from, from Jesus. But Peter, along with the 12, said, you have the words of eternal life. Where can we go? 
And others who heard Jesus' teaching said similar things. Here in Luke 7, 16, we read, They were all filled with awe and praised God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Jesus also referred himself as a prophet. We have many examples of that in the Gospels. Uh, But here in Matthew 13, he says, um, A prophet is not... uh, without honor, except in his hometown and in his own home. Remember that account? Jesus comes back. It was supposed to be a big welcome. Finally, he has come back home. Yet, they couldn't get past the fact that he is Joseph's son. And for the most of his adult life, he worked with wood. He's got calluses on his hands. And wait, isn't he so-and-so's brother? So-and-so's son? Then we see him playing among us, growing up. And who does he think he is? And they rejected him. Funny thing. After this whole prophet without honor thing in Matthew 14, Jesus does two things. Is it on here? Okay. Jesus does two things. First, right after, uh, yeah, he feeds the the 5,000, right? And so, what's, what's the significance of that event? Well, you have to understand that in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, here the prophet Elisha fed 100 men, miraculously. And again, proved his role and calling as a prophet. And Jesus not only doubles that, I don't know what the math is here, but he fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And it's in the multiplying of bread, feeding the people, Jesus affirms his role as a prophet, even though his hometown did not. And then, right after that, he walks on water. Again, what's the significance of this event following the whole rejection from his hometown? Well, Jesus in, uh, in Moses in Exodus 14, he crossed the Red Sea. He walked through dry land, and Jesus here in uh, In Matthew 14, he walks on water to say, I am greater even uh, than Moses himself. And so, while many of the miracles Jesus performed show the continuity between the Old Testament prophets and Jesus, Jesus actually says, no, no, I am not just one of many, but I am the ultimate fulfillment of that. And these are intentional. And Matthew puts these stories side by side for us to understand that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he is the prophet himself. Jesus came in grace and truth, John 1.17 says, and claimed uh, to be the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. And God the Father confirmed Jesus' authority as the prophet in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, in the story of the transfiguration God says, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus says that his words will never pass away. In fact, a person's destiny hangs on his or her response to Jesus' words about himself. And perhaps the best summary of this aspect of Christ's ministry came from the lips of the soldiers who were sent to arrest him. In John chapter 7, verse 46, they say, no man ever spoke 
like this man did. So he is a prophet or the prophet. So what does a prophet do? First, he reveals the truth. One of the primary functions of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry uh, was preaching and teaching. He taught us the truth and the will of God fully in and infallibly. In other words, it is through the life and the teaching of Jesus that we understand who God is. Because we cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus sums up his earthly ministry with these words. John 17, 6. Is it up there? Okay. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. In the truest sense, Jesus made God known to us. He exegeted God to us. He expounded on the, the little knowledge that the Old Testament people had. And he, he, he showed us the, the entire landscape of who God is and his plan for us. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, this is one of my favorite passages about Jesus, the son, the prophet, uh, but something greater than prophet. He says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Why did Jesus have to come to reveal the truth? Because the truth was lost. That was the consequence of sin in Genesis chapter 3. And ever since then, the God of this world has blinded us and has prevented us from seeing the truth. And that's why the psalmist would say, open the eyes of my heart that I might see the wonderful things in your word. It's not that we can't read the Bible. It means that we can't understand the truth behind it. So there is a disconnect between knowledge and true knowledge of God. What we think we know about God and who God really is. And so Jesus, as the great prophet, makes the Father known to us. In 1 Corinthians 2, oops, sorry, I guess I forgot to put that one. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2, 7. Uh, we declare God's wisdom a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Again, 1 Peter 1 and 2, it was revealed to them, the Old Testament prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, Peter says, when they spoke of these things, the ministry of reconciliation, and how God will come to dwell with his people. That have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Isn't that like crazy to think that the Old Testament prophets, as they're declaring the ministry of Christ, who is to come, a new era of the spirit, a covenant of grace that would unfold. And even this whole idea of the suffering servant who might even die, but come back to life to gather his people for himself, 
The Old Testament prophets had an inkling of what they were saying, but before long, they realized, you know what, this is not for us. It's for someone else. And it says that even the angels longed to see how this was going to happen. It's like the angels up in heaven waiting with bated breath to see how this was going to get played out. Even after Christ's ascension, he continues to function as the prophet by speaking the truth through the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Okay, hold on. Verse 26 um, uh, of John, I, I believe, uh, 16, it says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. It's this idea that Christ, even though he is done uh, and is seated at the right hand of God, continues the work of ministry. Even though, in, on the one hand, it is done, it's finished. Just as he said on the cross, he continues the work. And now, through the Spirit, he presses the truth into our hearts. And he speaks the truth to us. And we'll talk more about this when we get to so what part. But really, every day he is speaking the truth to our hearts. In fact, as God's prophets call to speak and embody the word ourselves, when we speak the truth to one another and to the world, we are not only exercising the office of prophet as Christ called us to, but the Spirit of God then takes those words and he breathes life through them and into the hearts of people. So this idea that all Scripture is God-breathed, as Paul says to Timothy, okay, and is useful for correcting, rebuking, right, and training in righteousness, it's, it's not just for Paul's words to the churches that are scattered abroad, but every time when God's people, even today, speak the word of God, God uses that to breathe life. And you feel that, don't you? When you come to church on Sundays, maybe you come with a very calloused heart. You're distracted by the cares of this world. Maybe Super Bowl. Or maybe your team didn't make it, but you can still watch it anyway. Yet somehow the word comes and it has this effect on your heart. That is Jesus speaking the word to you through the Spirit. Okay, And so the office of Prophet continues for Jesus. The famous theologian Louis Burkhoff once said, Christ continues his prophetic activity through the operation of the Holy Spirit. His teachings are both verbal and factual. That is, he teaches not only by verbal communications, but also by the facts of revelation, such as the incarnation, his atoning death, the resurrection, and ascension. So Christ continues to reveal the truth to us now through the Spirit and through his people, okay? the body of Christ. Okay. As a prophet, Jesus embodies the truth, or in the Old, New Testament times, during his earthly ministry, he embodied the truth. The whole character of the prophetic life was ordinarily to be in such conformity to divine commandments, in other words, the prophet not only was called to speak on God's behalf, but he was to be a man of God so that life and ministry were in sync. So that you could listen to a prophet and look at his life and realize that these words are true 
because in part by the evidence of his godly life. But there were times when the prophets in the Old Testament were called to physically demonstrate the truth in certain dramatic fashion to be an object lesson. I don't know if you ever read through the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel, but I remember first time running into like these passages thinking, how could God do this? Poor prophets, okay? Now before we get there, there was Hosea, right? He had to marry Gomer. How would you like that? And you have to deal with all the chatter. It was a small town. People talked. They knew Gomer and her history. And I mean, you, you had to marry an unfaithful wife to demonstrate God's love for basically unfaithful Israel. Right? That whole marriage and his life and naming his children, remember? Like, God has forsaken you. Like, imagine calling your kid. Hey, God has forsaken you. Where's your lunch? You can't, you can't go to school without your lunch. I mean, every time he said, called his wife or said his children, he was reminded of this great reality that was unfolding right before him. Gets better. Isaiah, he had to walk around naked for three years. I remember thinking, what, what, did I just read that right? He had to what? He had to walk around naked for three years as a sign of God's judgment on Egypt and Ethiopia. And here's the prophet walking down the street. You're like, Isaiah, man, it's, it's been a long time now. Can you, can you put something on? No, no, this is what's going to happen to Egypt and Ethiopia. God has spoken. But here's the question. Why would God call his prophets to embody the message in such a way. Maybe it was to call the people to repentance. If the word itself wasn't going to do it, maybe the visual. I don't know, we're all different learners, right? I mean, if the, if the sermon that is preached in this sanctuary on Sunday doesn't do it, ah, don't picture it, but Duke walking around like this might actually do it. It, it might. It might just, wow, okay, I, I better take God's word seriously. Ezekiel, he had to lay on his left side for 390 days as a sign of forbearance of Israel's sin. I don't know about you, but I'm a side sleeper, but never on just one side. I, I just got to, you know, I pivot. I pivot a lot. I cannot imagine being stuck on one side for 390 days. What kind of numbing effect does that have on your body? Like someone's got to come and feed you, clean up after you. I mean, yet there again, the prophet embodying the message. Now, Jesus never walked around naked for three years or laid on his left side for, you know, 390 days. But he did demonstrate the word of God in the most compelling and beautiful ways. You read about it in the gospels. His love for the weak and the broken. As he calls the children to himself, when all the adults at the time were saying, no, 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 he's too important. He has no time for you. That he would speak, heal, and touch those that have been cast out. Lepers who had to cry out, leper, leper, 
so that no one would even dare to come, you know, anywhere near that person, let alone actually touch that person. Yet Jesus in his life embodied the beauty of God's word. And ultimately he would go on the cross and the cross would be the ultimate example of God's love for us, as Paul says. And that's why John can say in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me, Jesus talking about this, Jesus talking here, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus also confirmed the truth. Uh, His miracles uh, belong not only in the priestly role because most of his miracles were related to healing, but there is a prophetic element as well. The Old Testament prophets performed miracles to confirm their ministry, much like the early church, right? Uh, The word and work, they went hand in hand. So as Peter preached the message, people were wrestling through that. He would perform uh, a miracle to confirm that this indeed is God's word. He is a sign that God has just given to do that. Like that, the Old Testament prophets not only preached, but they performed miracles um, to confirm their ministry as prophets. Uh, Jesus did point to his signs as grounds for acceptance of him. Oh, Matthew 12, 46, Jesus said uh, to John the Baptist's disciples, remember John the Baptist, he, he had a weak moment. He wasn't sure if Jesus is who he thought he was. And so while in prison, facing impending death, he gathers his disciples and he sends them off to to ask Jesus, maybe in, on the side, to say, hey, are you really the one? Are you really the one? And this is what Jesus says, uh, starting with verse 4. Uh, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is not Jesus summarizing his, his ministry just, you know, haphazardly, but it's actually going back to Isaiah 61, where the ministry of the Messiah, where the Spirit will come to dwell, this, this is it. This is exactly what Isaiah said the, the Messiah would do. And Jesus, quoting that passage, is reminding John, it's okay. It's me. I have come. Just as promised. Later in John 5, 36, uh, Jesus also says, I have testimony weightier, weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Again, pointing to the miracles that he was performing. He says, these are the works of my Father. And all the miracles, if you think about it, are pointing us to uh, what is to come. The miracles of healing remind us that in heaven there will be no sickness. The miracles of uh, raising the dead remind us that in heaven there will be no death. So all of these things are in ways preview of what's to come. And Jesus says, my work testifies to the work that God has begun, is doing, and will ultimately do when heaven comes. In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus, who claimed the title, I am, right? Going back to Exodus, I am, confirmed his prophetic role through the signs that he performed. Uh, Again, John 2, 11, after turning water to wine, Jesus uh, 
it's said of Jesus that um, this was the first sign and the disciples believed in him. Again, there's a lot of overlap between uh, the Gospel of John and the book of Exodus. I am, I am, I am. And Jesus says that many times. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light, I'm the good shepherd, Jesus says, on and on and on. And he performed signs, these miracles, uh, to prove who he really is, to make himself known, to make the Father known, as God did in the book of Revelation. Okay. Any questions at this point? We're going to move on to the priestly office. It's a better looking Jesus. And uh, uh, as we get later into the night, we'll have more pictures. Uh, I know it's hard. It's challenging. I I was going to sneak in a picture of my kids to see if you're uh, awake. But any questions at this point? Yes. So, David, in the life of David, he prays really interesting prayers that I would be uncomfortable praying, right? Uh, Break the teeth of my enemies. Like, if someone cut me off, I I couldn't pray that prayer. You know, like, break his car and everything. It's just, right? We're we're supposed to love, right? The greatest coming. Yet, David is able to pray that prayer, and somehow God answers, At least not in the psalm, but David is confident that God will answer. So how is he able to pray that and and actually, like, go to bed at night? Like, right? It's because he understands that he is, I don't know if he, he certainly didn't know the the whole already not yet or even the the type and anti-type, you know, typology. But he understood that the role of a king of Israel was much bigger than, what he perceived to be. It was more than just holding an office, but it was through the line of David uh, that the king would come, right? Uh, We'll talk a little bit about this, but as early as Genesis 49, verse 10, as uh, Jacob is pronouncing blessing over his kids, he says, the scepter will remain with the line of Judah. And then 2 Samuel 7 says, no, it's through the house of David. So David understands that something is much bigger here than he understands. And so he can pray for even restoration to his throne confidently and know that God will answer. So, yeah. You guys like this picture? (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, As I said, the priest basically speaks on God's behalf. Uh, the prophet speaks on God's behalf. The priests actually represent God's people to God, okay? So it, it's, it's a dual thing here. Uh, God not only speaks uh, to us through Christ and the Spirit now, but Christ, who mediates the covenant, uh, represents us uh, to, before God the Father. And that's basically the role of a priest, okay? Uh, from the time of... Um, basically Moses and the law that was given in Exodus 20 and on, Aaron and his descendants were admitted to the office and permitted to enter 
the holy place. And only the high priest, as you may recall, was allowed to approach God in the most holy place once a year after a sin offering for himself. Uh, As the author of uh, the epistle of the Hebrews points out, these restrictions were fraught with the important lesson that the Old Testament priesthood was still imperfect. And that God's people must be looking expectantly to one who can represent man without being himself entangled in sinfulness. That this priest will not only be perfect, but he will be a priest forever. He has to be better than Aaron. And, uh, you know, you, you continue to read the Old Testament and you get to Aaron's sons and you're like, oh, there goes the priesthood, right? And then there's the strange character, Melchizedek. So that's him on the right with the white beard, okay? Uh, left is Abraham right after the victory, okay? And he's presenting the tenth, the tithe, okay, of everything that uh, he gained from the war he has, okay? Now, very little is known about Melchizedek. Like, we, we don't even know where he comes from, what his origins are, okay? And I think uh, the author of Hebrews really just picks up on that and takes full advantage of it, okay? So outside of Genesis 14 in the book of Hebrews, we don't know anything about this guy. We're told that he uh, was a king of Salem, and a priest of God most high, so a priest king. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus, like Melchizedek, will be the great high priest okay, uh, forever. And just like Melchizedek, he, Jesus is also not from the line of Aaron. Okay? And that's another little factoid between Melchizedek and Jesus. Okay, so... As a priest, Jesus offers the perfect sacrifice for us. In the New Testament, the death and resurrection of Christ have probably the most important uh, prominence, right? It it is what everything is leading up to and everything else flows out of that. And uh, two things here. Christ's offering has two elements. And and these two requirements, uh, uh, requirements must be there. Christ has to be a perfect sacrifice, okay? And as a priest offering this sacrifice, he also has to be a perfect priest, okay? Anything less than that, then we don't get the cross and everything we know to be, okay? So let's talk about the sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifices had several requirements, one of which was it had to be perfect. It had to be an unblemished animal, You couldn't draw or pick out one with a bad leg or missing eye. It had to be perfect. And just like that, Jesus had to be the unblemished, perfect lamb of God. Moreover, Jesus uh, is not just the perfect lamb, but he's the God-man who sacrificed once and for all cleanses the guilt of not just one sinner, but all sinners. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 to 28, such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who, he, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So there's no need, therefore, for a constant repetition okay, of sacrifice. Jesus offered himself once and for all as a perfect sacrifice given to God to satisfy the wrath of God, and that's it. Okay? But not only that, he had to be the perfect priest. The author of Hebrews emphasizes the priestly work of Jesus, especially in chapters 5 through 10. One could not assume this office. You, you didn't get to volunteer for this, okay? But only by divine appointment could one serve uh, in God's presence. Now, Aaron and his descendants, uh, they were chosen for that. But later with Jesus, there was an oath that God made. That you, God says to Christ, would be a high priest forever. Jesus, unlike Aaron and Melchizedek, is the high, uh, perfect priest. Hebrews 7, 16 and 17 again. And uh, verses 26 and 28, here we, we understand Jesus' priestly role a little bit better. Uh, one who has become a priest, verse 16 says, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, meaning the oath that was given to someone outside of line of uh, Aaron. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart for sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices himself, and so on and so forth. Okay? And he is a, a priest forever. Okay? Hebrews seven twenty three and 25. Okay. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The dignity of Christ's priesthood is highlighted by the fact that it is sanctioned by a divine oath. We read that in Hebrews 7. You are a priest to be forever. God is not going to change his mind. I have made an oath, God says. Um, I think Boving said this, he says, uh, he's a a systematic theologian. Um, He writes, for the execution of his priestly work, Christ needs to be both divine and human. His deity qualifies him to find acceptance with God and to perform a work of eternal significance and power. His humanity is essential to secure real contact with those whom he came to redeem to make possible their identification with him by virtue of his prior identification with them. In other words, Jesus had to be perfect, not only as a sacrifice, but as a priest. And in order for that to happen, and in order for him to die, not only for another man, but for all those who come to him, as we read in Hebrews 7, he had to be a divine man. And it is in his divinity that he is perfect, He is eternal. He is powerful to save, right? But it's in his humanity that he's able to identify with us, to sympathize, and therefore we can come to his throne, which is a throne of grace, and find strength in times of need, as the author of Hebrews would go on to say. 
And because Jesus is a priest, he can fully enter into our humanity and our unique everyday context to sympathize with us and give us grace in time. This, this ought to be good news for us. If we can, I, I, I don't know how much we're gonna have, time we're going to have to really unpack the implications of this, but if we can really understand the priestly role of Christ and that even now, at the right hand of God, in the very presence of God, he represents us to pray for us, to intercede for us, knowing fully well what we are going through. That he does not despise our weakness or our sin, but continues to intercede. If we can really understand what's going on in the very courtroom up there, I think it would give us great confidence. Great confidence to come before him boldly to the throne of grace, to approach the Father as any children would, and to say, God, I need help. I need help. I need help. Right? Jesus' priestly role does not negate our priestly role, as we will see. We are called then to be the body of Christ, just as Christ interceded for us as people. Right? John 17. We also then are called to intercede for one another and for the world, to stand in the gap, if you will, to continue to pray for the kingdom advancement. As a priest, we talked about this already a little bit, but he intercedes for us. First John 2, 1, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And I, I just love this idea, this picture of the accuser bringing before God all our mess, right? And Jesus stands right beside us and he says, but Father, I died for that too. I, I died for that too. And Jesus could basically say, Satan, look, let me tell you a few more things you don't know about him, okay? You, you, you thought you had dirt on him? I'll, I'll, actually, I'll tell you all because I died for all of that. And we stand in the, in the very presence of God the Father. Innocent, perfectly innocent. It's a beautiful picture. Hebrews 9, 24, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. That was uh, only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, and I love this, now appears for us in God's presence. He appears for us. Not just every now and then, all the time. This is what he's doing all the time. This type of activity is in line um, both, uh, yeah, is in line with the Old Testament priestly functions, right? Because this is basically what the Old Testament priests were to do. And what we see in, in, in the life of Aaron, just the few times that he is carrying out the high priestly role, we can then understand that that's what Jesus is doing at all times, okay? Aaron was a man just like us. He had other responsibilities that he had to do in addition to the high priestly role. Now, that was a high calling, but he was distracted. And sometimes because of his own sin, he had to do all of these things first before he could enter into the presence of God to mediate on our behalf. And so what we see in, in snippets, when Aaron is really Aaron, 
That's what Jesus is doing at all times. Now, what did Aaron do when he was functioning as a high priest? He wore an ephah that had all the tribes on his breastplate as a symbol of him bringing his, the people of God before the presence of God to intercede on their behalf. And God would look at the ephah and, and remember the names of the children of Israel. His covenant, his oath, his love. And he would see the blood that was, the sacrifice that was offered. And instead of judgment, he would extend mercy. Fast forward to the, the priestly role of Jesus Christ. He has our names on the palm of his hands. And he says, Father, I look, I... I bring them before you. I pray for them. Lord, you know that that sister is struggling. I pray for them. That brother who's going, I pray for him. That's what Jesus is doing. He's bringing us. Every time we pray, the spirit groans and Jesus takes our prayers. He edits and then he comes and says, God, here. If we can really understand this, I I think this would change the way we see even ourselves and and, and, and how we deal with sin. How often, if you're like me, we feel like we got to work it off, right? We put ourselves in temporary purgatory, if you will, right? You know, we, we give ourselves time to work it off, do some good things to make up for that so that we can come and present ourselves before the Father. But if we really understand that we have an advocate, who stands before the throne. Wow. Now, of course, we confess our sins. And there is godly sorrow. And we're called to repent, to turn from sin, and to walk in righteousness. Of course, all of those things are still in play. But there's no sense of shame, guilt, fear hanging over us. No judgment ever. That ought to create within us great sense of joy. I, I hope we as God's people would, would think of prayer time as one of the most exciting times. I get to be with dad. The ceremonies, now going back to the Old Testament priest, not only did Aaron wear the ephod, but he would every now and then uh, light the incense. In fact, the incense in the temple was supposed to be on 24-7. It was to never be turned off. Again, this, it's symbolic of Jesus' prayer for us, right? His prayer, like incense, rises before the, uh, the throne. Did I get ahead? Okay. Psalm 141, is that on there? Okay. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like evening sacrifice. Uh, later, Reve- uh, Revelation chapter, three verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 3 Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. So it's this idea that we offer up our prayers and it's like incense rising to the throne. But certainly Christ, the high priest, does that. Um, during his earthly ministry, Jesus frequently engaged in prayer. He prayed not only to be a good role model for us so that we can read about him 2,000 years later and say, let's be like Jesus. No, he prayed because he missed dad. He prayed. Of course, he needed strength and power 
for the work that God had called him to, but he just wanted to be with his father. With his busy schedule, Mark 1.35 says, he often withdrew to an isolated place, so much so that when Jesus was missing, the disciples knew where to go find him. And sure enough, he's out there in the middle of nowhere praying. Why? He prayed. He missed the Father, but even then he prayed for us. And we see a sample of that in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. His heart and eyes are always toward us. He's mindful of us. He's aware of everything that's going on. And he sympathizes. And he prays that we would find strength and hope. And as he prays for us, then now, as we talked about earlier, the prophetic office of Christ, he now breathes the gospel. And he gives us comfort and hope through his word, right? And Jesus continues to pray for us. John 14, 16, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost is the result of Jesus' prayer. Romans 8, 34. Sorry. Okay. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus continues to pray. He continues to pray for us even today. The blessing sought can scarcely be a favor that God would be reluctant to grant. Think about that. As we pray for God's blessing, God is not reluctant to answer our prayers, and he is not reluctant to grant his blessing. It is with delight he answers the prayer of Jesus, his son. And we don't know it, but all the spiritual blessings in heaven has been given to us. And that is being worked out in ways that we're not aware of, but he is. See here. Okay. The primary purpose of the intercession of Christ is to provide a continued application of the merits of his life and death for those whom he has redeemed, to protect us from the wrath of God, and to receive the full measure of his blessings. Jesus, this is what he's praying for, and this is what's happening as a result of his intercession on our behalf. And he protects us from the wrath of God because. Once and for all, it's done. But he then unlocks all the blessings in heaven for us. Any questions? I'm going to pause here and take a break and wrap things up with the kingly office. Any questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. So there is this sense of there's a sense of already not yet, right? Um, we are this idea that we are saved, but we're not yet saved. The final salvation awaits us. We're justified, but we're not yet justified. And if you understand the resurrection of Christ, He had to uh, He had to come back to life because on the judgment day, the future day that's to come. 
He's going to, once and for all, on that day, declare us justified. So this whole order of salvation that we're used to, it's not just this one straight line, but it's just all jumbled up, and it operates in the already not yet. So in, in the sense, yes, God's wrath is satisfied once and for all, right? But that is going to be completed on the judgment day, right? So it's this confusing theological paradigm of already not yet. But we can be confident that there's no bait and switch here, right? It's not like, I thought it was, but it's not. Because Paul, understanding all this, would say that we are already not only justified, but glorified. It's this idea that in Christ, because we're in Christ, it's already done, right? Yes. So would that mean that after judgment, that role would change? The role of intercession? Or, or the justifying part of the question Yes, yes. Yeah, because on the judgment, the final judgment day, that, that's when we will be completely saved as the Bible paints it in the fullest sense, Right? Does, it, does that make sense? Okay. Okay, I see a lot of hungry faces. For the word and for the food. So, okay. Let's, uh, let's break and we will come back in like 15 minutes. Is that okay? All right, let's uh, let's start. Okay, we're going to talk about the kingly office of Jesus, and uh, afterwards we'll talk about why this is important. And uh, at that point, we'll look at the importance of. Uh, the covenant mediation, and then we'll look at the order of salvation and so on, and then we'll wrap things up with some concrete applications for us uh, as God's people, okay? So the kingly office. The king, especially in the Old Testament, as God's representative, um, ruled over God's people um, and sought really the peace, the flourishing of his people, we are told that the line of kings will come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis, 30, uh, Genesis 49, 10. Uh, here it says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor will the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. And this is one of those uh, interesting points. Why would God choose Judah, the fourthborn, and not Reuben, the oldest. And if you look at the story of basically, you know, the brothers growing up together, you understand towards the tail end of the book of Genesis why Judah emerges as this leader who, I guess in one sense, uh, proved to dad that he had leadership skills and had what it took to become or to inherit this blessing. Uh, because as you may remember, Judah is the one who said, no, let me stay behind. Let me stay behind and Benjamin go. Because if Benjamin doesn't return, then our father is going to die. Okay? And Judah is the one who steps up to that 
And as a result of that, it's Judah who receives this blessing uh, and a promise that kings will come from uh, the tribe of Judah. And later on, the promise uh, then begins to take particular shape. And in 2 Samuel 7, this is what we read. When your days are over, this is God speaking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he, goes, uh, when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love would never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is one of those prophecies where you're like, who is it talking about? Because it sounds like God is talking about an eternal king, someone who's going to reign forever, obviously Jesus. But then you get to that part about punishing him with a rod wielded by man, floggings inflicted by human hands. Like, wait, I don't remember that. Um, and as with all the prophecies, there are both immediate and future implications. Okay? So no prophecy ever speaks to one or the other, but there are uh, fulfillments, both immediate and the, the distant. And this is uh, no different. Here, as God is speaking of the house of David, obviously is talking about Solomon and the kings to come and God disciplining uh, the kings that will come in the uh, line of David, in the house of David, but again, with an eye toward a king who will come, who will be completely different, a king like no other, whose kingdom will endure forever. Another major support for Jesus' kingship not only uh, comes from the fact that he is from the tribe of Judah and the line of David, but it's what Paul picks up on in the book of Romans. He refers to Jesus as the second Adam. And often we think in terms of representative, and I, I would say you're right to think along those lines, but for Jesus to be the second Adam actually means all of these things combined. Uh, Adam in the garden was a prophet, right? He made known God's word to Eve and their children as they had kids. And he spoke on God's behalf, do not eat from that tree, right? He was also a priest in that he guarded the garden, which was essentially a sanctuary where God and man dwelt together, fellowship together. And he was to keep the sanctuary pure in that sense. And he was also a king in that he exercised dominion over uh, all creation. Where Adam failed, Jesus actually succeeds. Uh, not only as a, our representative in whom we find our identity and our acceptance, our adoption, all of that stuff, but Jesus succeeds in all of these offices. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 and unpack that a little bit because I think there are some key uh, pieces there that we often sort of glance over without giving it a whole lot of thought, but sort of with this prophet, priest, king, especially the kingly role, in mind, I think Genesis 3 will come alive. Now, as I said, the Garden of Eden is a holy place, a sacred space where God and his people fellowshiped. It, as uh, the account says, in the cool of the evening, Adam and Eve would walk with God, the Father. And in many ways, it functioned like a temple where 
uh, the people of God and God himself will fellowship in that way. And as you read through the Old Testament, you understand that God gives very strict guidelines for how the priests are to care for the temple. And one of the things that God commands, a line that he would not compromise, is that a temple must remain sacred. It must be holy. No unclean things can enter uh, the sanctuary. Yet, in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is in the garden. And there, he is speaking, right, to Eve. And where is all this taking place? It's taking place at a tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And again, you have to understand the role of a tree in the Old Testament. It was a place of judgment. You go to the book of Judges, Deborah judged under Deborah's tree. And she would see cases and she would speak into that and give guidance. And later on in the New Testament, Jesus was condemned and cursed on a tree. It's a place of judgment. So here is, as you imagine Genesis 3 unfolding, right? Here is Satan at a place of judgment in a sacred space where he does not belong. And instead of Adam exercising the role as a priest, right? To cleanse the temple. Does that sound like somebody? of all the things that defile the temple, or as a prophet speaking truth and casting out the enemy, or exercising power and authority as the vice regent and crushing the head of the enemy, he sits quietly and he gives it. Adam failed as a priest, prophet, and king. And Jesus, the second Adam, he succeeds where Adam fails. Jesus He walks into the temple and sees the ruckus of all the people selling animals because they want to make some money off of those who are coming from long distances so that they could upcharge the animals and make a profit. Jesus sees all that. He flips the tables and basically says, this will be a house of prayer. He purifies the temple. And Jesus, he spoke the word of God all throughout his life He called out sin when he needed to. He was able to and and did not shy away from confronting the Pharisees and other religious leaders who were taking the truth, the religious system, and, and even the offices that God had given them for financial gain. Jesus confronted evil and spoke truth to them. And through his death and resurrection, he crushed the serpent's head. What Adam should have done in Genesis 3, Jesus does as a second Adam throughout his earthly life. And there he exercises, yes, the role of a prophet priest, but mostly the role of a king. Jesus, during the time of his uh, earthly ministry, used the language of kingship extensively uh, in the course of his uh, life and public ministry, notably in the expressions, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. He would use that in the sermon, the parables. Um, Oh, there's Adam. If you ever wanted to know what uh, Eden looked like, there it is. Okay? (laughs) Now you know. Okay. Okay, Jesus uh, used the title Lord in reference to himself. 
Jesus also used the title king in reference to himself. Jesus compared himself to Solomon in Matthew chapter 12, where uh, he says, now something greater than Solomon is here. And he spoke of his glory and his throne. Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. And he referred to his own authority uh, as king. In Matthew 28, 18, right? In the great uh, commission as Jesus sends the disciples out to the very ends of the earth, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and I delegate that to you. I give that to you. Go in my name, he says. So what are uh, some of the practical implications of Jesus' kingship? First, he is the head of the church. Colossians 1, 17 through 19 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So when we talk about Jesus' headship, we're talking about Jesus' leadership over, authority over the church. And as a leader of the church, Jesus provides all things, including the spirit and all the gifts of the spirit to guarantee her growth and success. In Ephesians 4, 7, we realize that spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the one giving out the gifts according to his own desires, but he gives out the gifts according to Christ's desires. So this is all part of Jesus' administration, his role as king. He is, as the head over the body, the church, he is committed. He has actually bound himself with a promise that the church will succeed in the mission that he has given. And we see that in Matthew 16, 17 through 19. Not even the gates of hell would be able to withstand the church from forcefully advancing into the hearts of people, Jesus says. All this, right, this role of Jesus the head, us the body, and all the blessings that we have, the promises, the oath that were spoken to us, the resources that we are, we are given uh, by the Spirit in this community together, uh, it's, that's what the theologians call union with Christ. That we belong to him and he belongs to us. That we're in him and he, by his spirit, is in us. And this has great significance okay, in our practical life, right? The fact that we are identified as the body of Christ who belong to him says everything about our justification, right? We do not stand on our own merit. We don't come before God with our own strength to offer that to him to somehow work out the sanctification with our own strength. And, and, and at the end, somehow, hopefully we achieve glorification as a result of and the culmination of all the positive good things that we have done. No, we are in Christ, right? We are his body. We, we are one with him. And therefore, Paul can confidently say, yes, you are already justified. You have been adopted as sons and daughters. You have already been sanctified. In fact, you have already been glorified. Because he who called you is faithful and he will do it. You belong to him and he's going to do it. Yes, you have a role. Right? We're not just bystanders watching all this happen. Right? We contribute to that work, but it's guaranteed for us. Jesus is also the victor. 
David, again, understanding his role as king of God's people and understanding that through him, a greater king will come one day, says this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And this, as you know, in the Old New Testament, plays itself out. It's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, Herod, the leaders of that time who are plotting against the Lord's anointed. They would sit there saying, hey, let's hand him off over here. You know what? Let's just get rid of him altogether. Let's crucify him. Then we will experience true freedom. No more bondage, no more shackles from this king. God says, what are you doing? And Jesus is that king that God has installed who will be king forever. And it is in his resurrection that Jesus comes into his role as king finally. Obviously, he's reigning. He's bringing the kingdom. He's ushering it in with us. That's why the first sermon Jesus ever preached was, repent for the kingdom of God is near, right? It's through the word spoken, the miracles performed, the kingdom is coming. It's forcefully advancing, but it's through the resurrection that Jesus now seated at the right hand and he reigns as king. He defeated sin and death and he overcame all earthly and heavenly power and authority. He is, as the book of Revelation says, king of kings and lord of lords. And at the name of Jesus, Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is who he claimed himself to be. Jesus is also the judge. In Acts 17, this is Apostle Paul's little sermonette to the people in Athens. And he ends that sermon with these words, starting with verse 29. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, all of us, Created in the likeness of God, right? We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus, King, Jesus is our judge. And one day, as we profess in the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And the crazy thing is, is we'll talk about this a little bit more, but as co-heirs, this is what we're invited into. Like, we're not just seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms, enjoying the blessings and the favor of the triune God, but we reign with him, including judging the enemies, Like, I have no idea what that means. But that's the promise that God has given to us and the role that awaits us at some point in, maybe on the final judgment day. That's when it will happen, okay? He also reigns. I told you more pictures to keep you guys away. Oh, sorry. You can look at him for a little bit. He reigns. 
the extent of his reign is endless. He not only reigns in the hearts of his people, but even those who would resist him. The establishments, the powers, the spiritual oppositions, everything is under his reign. And Christ, in his wisdom, in his power, in his mercy toward his people, is orchestrating all of these things for his glory, but also for our good. See, the only way, Romans 8, 28, and God works for the good of those, that, you know, in all things, only way that promise can be real is if Jesus reigns over all things as king. If he's only a prophet or priest, that promise cannot be. He can speak that truth to us, but how is he going to carry that out? With what authority? But Jesus is king. Christ fulfills in perfection the destiny which has been appointed to Adam, as we saw, where Adam failed. Christ succeeds, he triumphs, and now as a victor, he reigns. And he exercises his power ever so gently. And it's his kindness that leads all of us, at least for all of us who profess Christ, to repentance. And he's continuing this work through his church. He's reigning through us, the body, okay? Where first Adam forfeited his privileges by his rebellion, the second Adam has excelled in his obedience. And he obtained the glorious fulfillment of the divine plan for man. He has secured it not only through his sacrifice, but his resurrection. And now, Romans 8, 28, and all the promises that are so grand, so lofty, we, we can go take that to the bank and know that God will answer and delight in answering because Jesus the prophet, priest, and king is working toward that end, okay? Okay, oh, did I forget this? And he made us co-heirs with this throne. Keep looking at this guy, okay? He made us co-heirs to the throne. Just think about this. Like, if we could just get a, a quick snapshot of what it's like right now in the spiritual realm, what Paul describes in, in such detail in the book of Ephesians, I think we would be blown away. It would change our understanding of God, us, one another, the way we see the world, I don't think we would be driven by fear at all, right? Because fear is a lie. Fear basically says that's not true, right? That's not true. But if we could understand that we are co-heirs with Christ, that we're seated with him at the right hand of God, a place of privilege, but place of fellowship, intimacy, everything going on, and enjoying the fellowship between God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, to enjoy the victory that we have and that one day we will judge with him and even now we reign with him. This is crazy stuff. But this is the truth. And Jesus invites us to grow into our understanding of all of these things. The time of Christ's kingship, is it present or future? And the answer is yes. He reigns now and he will reign forever. There will be no end to his reign. Uh, you know, Prophet Daniel, he, he 
saw what seemed like a small rock that came and demolished the idols, the powers, the authorities that, that were there and even those before them. And the small rock grew into a giant mountain and there was no end, right? Basically talking about the kingdom that Christ will establish. Right? Start small, a simple message, a very short one, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and that will grow. And his reign will never end. And that is the promise that we can bank on. So why is this important? Okay, why is it important? And we talked a little bit about this. But why is it important that Jesus exercises all of these offices? First, for covenant renewal. He is the mediator of the covenant. You understand the covenant... Because we have broken the covenant, we receive the wrath, the judgment, the consequence that come, uh, comes with that. But Jesus, the high priest, satisfies the demand of the law, and he satisfies God in his wrath, and continually he intercedes on our behalf. That's how he mediates the covenant even now, right? He's constantly praying on our behalf. He represents us. Uh, to the Father. And as a prophet, he reveals all the promises of blessing that comes with covenant faithfulness. And where we have failed, Jesus says, no, I did all that. And therefore, all the blessings that come with the covenant obedience is yours. And Jesus speaks that to us all the time. Even when we can't believe it or won't believe it, Jesus presses the truth of his promise to us. And in fact, how can we believe unless we hear? There is the the body, the mission, the component of that, but there's also the spiritual role that Jesus plays as a prophet. He speaks the word to us, and as we hear it, we come to believe, and we hold on to these promises. And it's Jesus, the king, who rules us into obedience and surrender so that we can live out the covenant stipulations. So even as we think about the covenant mediation and how Jesus, you know, works in between us and God, it's important that he fulfills all of these offices, that he is not just one or two, but he is all three and exercises all of these things for the satisfaction of God, but also, right, uh, for our own benefit, our own blessing. It's also important for uh, our salvation, the order of salvation. Uh, I said it, uh, you know, earlier today, but, um, you know, it's not a straight line. We don't check these things off, but it sort of happens in already not yet format, which drives some of you nuts, but that's how it is. Uh, If you look at... um, basically the order of salvation, you realize that Jesus uh, and his offices are there. Like he's working as a prophet, he's working as priest and as king. Um, for example, the calling, the effectual calling, the gospel call, we hear it and our hearts are open and we then respond to that call, right? Um, the effectual calling is where as we hear the gospel, we have no other chance or option but to respond to that gospel call 
with a hearty amen, right? That call comes through Christ the prophet. He's the one speaking the truth to us, giving birth to faith in our hearts. And he's the one then regenerates our hearts as a result of the effect that the word has on us. And, the re- and regeneration then gives birth to faith. And then he calls us to repentance, right? He calls us to repentance. He, Jesus the prophet, is the one who convicts us of our sin and our need for a savior. This is what he does. Justification, it's a priestly work. It removes our guilt okay, and the penalty of sin in exchange for his righteousness. Adoption, this is what the king does. He adopts us as his sons and daughters into his kingdom. He delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into the light. And we were once his enemy, but now he bestows upon us the glory of being called his children. Sanctification, this is his kingly work, right? He gives us power. He frees us from the bondage of sin. And he gives us power to walk in our calling in the new identity that he has given to us. Perseverance, right? Uh, Till the very end. This, again, is the kingly office. He gives us grace. He sustains our faith. Glorification, this is my guess, but I think it's the kingly office, right? He frees us not only from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin once and for all, and he grants us full and final redemption as his people. All that to say, if you understand the different offices that Christ um, functions in, not only in the abstract, but in the everyday life, how we need him to be our prophet, how we need him to be our priest, and how how we need him to be the king, things will begin to open up for us. We will begin to understand the commitment, the role, uh, that Christ uh, plays, okay? And I think it will really help uh, in understanding um, our, our role as a church for sure, but I think it will help with things like even prayer, okay? to know that he intercedes for us. It will give us confidence and great comfort to know that he's the one speaking the truth, the gospel to us all the time, breathing life into our hearts, okay, through his word, I think it would give us great comfort to know that he's protecting us as king. I mean, this is just a small example of all the things that God is doing as he exercises these offices. So quick, we'll end with this. What would it mean uh, for us as, I, I don't, okay, let me say this. It's not enough that we just learn more about theology. The goal is never knowing more, period. I think knowing has to translate to loving, right? And so it would behoove us as we grapple with these rich doctrine to really strive for a deeper intimacy with Christ, Right? To understand Christ, Christology, the states of Christ, uh, the persons of Christ, the offices of Christ. I, I wonder, and I want to challenge all of us 
in this way. What would it mean for us as we grapple with these truths to fall in love with Jesus more? And how in concrete everyday ways can we apply this thing into our everyday life in a way that would move us missionally to loving the body of Christ and the city? If Jesus really is the prophet and he's speaking the truth to us through his spirit, how does that then help us to respond? Or how does that force us, if you will, to respond to his word that we read and hear preached and discuss regularly? We shouldn't just listen and then die. No, no, we should seek obedience, submission, to that word, because that word is word of life, right? And what would it mean for us as a church to embody the truth in this city so that we, in our word and deed, we can reflect and demonstrate Christ the prophet and his beautiful message, the gospel here. Something to think about. And what would it mean for us to really understand Jesus the priest? The one who offered himself so that he can now intercede for us. How does that move us then to pray for one another? How does that then move us to pray for the city, to intercede? I think it has a lot of implications for how we as royal priesthood exercise our calling in serving the people, in representing them in our prayers before God. And Jesus the King. He's the one who's orchestrating all things. 10,000 reasons, right? Uh, and I love how P- John Piper said it. He said, you know, every moment God is working in 10,000 ways to bring about glory and good, glory to God and good, for, uh, good to us. He's doing this. How does that speak into your fear? How does that speak into your future concerns, present worries, the things that keep you up at night? He's committed to this. And to this end, he has bound himself. And until we see him face to face, he will always be this. Any questions? That's all I got. No songs. I'm sorry. Okay. Any questions? Yes, Jan. Yeah, so I, I don't think we're going to be judging in heaven, but on the judgment day. Um, it's one of those mysteries to me. The more I read about it, the more confu- I, I'm confused, to be honest with you. Like, how does it, what does it mean for us to reign with Christ in that kingly role, right? I, I, I don't know. Like, in one sense, yes, we have power and authority over uh, the enemies, right? He who in us is greater than the one that is in the world. If whatever you bind in prayer on earth would be bound in heaven. So there's some resemblance of that. Uh, there's that, that part of the kingly office. But this whole judging thing, it's like, 
I think on the judgment day, would we be seated with Christ in bringing judgment on sin and sinners? I don't know. And that waits, uh, awaits to be seen, really. But the Bible is not shy about it. Paul speaks of it. And uh, I guess we're going to have to wait until that day. Sorry, that's all I got with that one. I don't know either. I, I, Glenn, any, any thoughts? Mm-hmm. To exercise dominion, okay. Any other questions? Okay. Thank you all for being so patient. You're dismissed. Go. Oh, sorry, sorry. I lied. Um, we have two quick announcements and one acknowledgement. Um, first of all, thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the director of operations here at Grace Meridian Hill. And um, to that end, um, we do have some other network things we do throughout the year. And one of those is um, our, um, our Diane Langberg event coming up um, in February. Registration is now open to the broader community. So if you are wanting to go, it would be good to go ahead and register. There's a limited number of seats available for that, and registration is available through the website. There is also, um, similar to our Advent series, where the pastors throughout the network um, took turns preaching at all of the churches on a given Sunday, um, they will be doing that again during Lent this year and helping us prepare for Easter. Um, and then there will be the, probably the typical Easter week services. And then we want to give one acknowledgement. Um, all of the wonderful food out there was coordinated by Mazare Rogers. Um, so if you give a quick hand for Mazare. So, but thank you for coming. And um, if you just make sure you take all your trash out with you to the, the foyer. We try to leave the building well for our um, host church. Thank you. Okay. Um.